Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm glad to have you here today. Today, I'm pleased to be joined today by Reverend E. Regis Bunch. And Regi is the Amos Project Court Organizer for the Northeast Area of Ohio, where he builds power with faith leaders across Cuyahoga, Ashtabula, and Erie Counties. He came home to Ohio in 2020 after years of organizing in Nashville, Tennessee, in Los Angeles, California. In Los Angeles, Regis' organizing resulted in the reallocation of a $3.5 billion jail plan towards community investment and alternatives to incarceration. Regis holds Isaiah 26, 5-6 in his heart. For God has brought low the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city of God has brought low. God brings it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Old school gospel music and preaching invigorate Rigi. He thanks God for the many ancestors who have come before him that have created this black, radical, pastoral tradition. And I'll just share, I had the privilege of uh, hearing Rigi lead in some of this uh, radical music is awesome music at an event we both participated in back in 2017. So uh, it's been a blessing to me and I'm sure many others. So welcome to the show. What else do you want to say about yourself uh, for our listeners? Well, I am one of nine siblings. Uh, my father has passed on when I was two years old, which left my mom to raise seven children by herself. So she's the real uh, victor and champion of my story. Um, and I'm from a small rural country town in Ashtabula County. And, uh, and yeah, I guess I should add those two little pieces. Awesome. Awesome. Ooh. Well, and I'm licensed yeah. and ordained, I'm licensed in the Baptist church, but ordained, uh, in the Christian church disciples of Christ. Awesome. Um, what, <sighs> There's so many different uh, stripes of Baptist. Mm-hmm. Is there a yes. which? I grew up independent, fundamental Baptist. Which version of Baptist? I grew up out of the National Baptist Convention that was started by formerly enslaved folks who oh. organized uh, black churches throughout the uh, South to build their own uh, d- d- denomination. And uh, over a hundred years later, it's still kicking. National Baptist awesome. Convention. Optus. Awesome. Um, talk about your kind of your journey of faith. You mentioned you grew up in the in the in the Baptist church. Talk about your journey of faith, how you came to faith, what it looks like now and in, in, in your call to ministry, maybe. Yeah, um, I always appreciate this question because it allows folks to see the big picture of who I am and um, allows you to easily more more easily follow when I tell stories. So. Um, when I was a child, I was always involved in the church, not involved by force, but by choice. Um, mm-hmm. I loved church. I loved it. I loved it so much that I was 
doing mock services in my backyard with my neighbors and my <laughs> siblings. Uh, it was awesome. Um, it was such a huge. It had such a huge, huge impression on me um, that I would come to find out that I had a calling on my life when I was a kid, but I didn't, I think I thought I was too young, too inexperienced, too um, immature. I didn't take myself seriously, but I could mm -hmm. really be a preacher at such a young age. Um, and then I went off to the military and um, I tried to run away from my call. I really did. Mm. Um, yeah. When I got stationed in South Korea, I said, I'm not going to go to any advice church. I'm going to hang out with my battle buddies and do all this crazy stuff. And yeah. I did all the crazy stuff, but I still had a call to be pushed back to church. And so I found myself not only in, back in the church in South Korea at a chapel there, but I was leading their, uh, <laughs> I was their minister of music. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> and then um, I, when I got back from South Korea, I accepted my call to ministry in 2008 at the Central Missionary Baptist Church with my boyhood pastor, the late Reverend Dave Chappelle Jr. Uh, licensed me and I would get out the military and go into seminary mm -hmm. and my goal was to leave the military and go to college and get my seminary degree then I could return to the army and as a U.S. Army chaplain uh, yeah, so that yeah. one day I could be a colonel i really wanted to be a colonel one day but god obviously had different plans because mm -hmm. nothing i said stuck hmm. meaning that when i was in nashville at american baptist college which is the i didn't know that know at, at this time but i would find out that american baptist college is the alma mater of both ct vivian john and john lewis and oh. was the epicenter of the nashville sit-ins um, oh, so, I did not know that. Right. So Kelly Miller Smith, Diane Nash, uh, Bernard Lafayette, all of them would meet up at American Baptist College. And so I became inundated, inundated with social justice. Um, and mm -hmm. so um, I just remember my professor telling me to throw out my Rick Warren book, my Purpose Driven Life <laughs> book, and my um, what Bible did I have? I thought I had the Bible. I had a Jimmy Swaggart study Bible. Yeah. And my, yeah. my professor said, throw that shit out. It was so <laughs> funny. <laughs> but, and, That's great. And I did. And I exchanged those books with books uh, around the black past, the black radical pastoral tradition, reading mm -hmm. about Dr. King, reading about Malcolm X, reading about Adam Clayton Powell, reading about W.B. Du Bois. There's about so many different um, black uh, thinkers and realizing their message wasn't that radical. Mm -hmm. They're just saying, um, stop hurting and harming and killing us mm, yeah. and, ex and exploiting us. Those are easy requests, I think. Um, and it was like a, this whole synchronicity because so many things were happening at the right time that were transforming me and putting me into the social justice practice. I mean, it was being given the right books. It was uh, the social activist movements that were going on while I was in uh, undergrad. So I was in undergrad 2011. The Occupy mm -hmm. movement was hot and just heavy. Um, yeah, yeah. Trayvon Martin would happen in 20, February 2012. Yeah. 
um, Sandra Bland, Michael Brown, what happened in my last year at, um, mm-hmm. at, in seminary. And it was at the last year I went off to Los Angeles to go um, mm-hmm. work with the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors, who started her own organization, Dignity and Power Now, before BLM was even a thing. And Dignity and Power Now was fighting for incarcerated folks because Patrice mm-hmm. Cullors brother and her father and some other folks, friends and even herself has been incarcerated. And so she started this abolitionist organization that was working to uh, bring those dollars that were um, allocated for jails towards back towards the community. Mm-hmm. We needed more tre- treatment and help. And yeah. then my faith um, led me back to Nashville to work on my master's at the at Vanderbilt Divinity School. And I learned a lot about Vanderbilt when I was at American Baptist College. And then uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School in particular, not the university, but this, that particular school has a fantastic social justice history in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Law- Reverend James Lawson okay. went to that school. They would literally kick him out because he was involved hmm. in the civil rights movement. Um, and yeah, yeah, they would kick him down. So I'm the, so they don't have the best history, but, uh, <laughs> but they have some interesting history. Uh, but they would definitely learn from that mistake and, uh, allow history to really judge them and critique them. Mm-hmm. And they became a true champion of justice in the community there in Nashville. Um, the dean of the school there where I was there and she's still there is Dr. Uh, is Dean Emily Towns, who, uh, mm, yeah. Uh, came when she was appointed in her position, um, really tested uh, Vanderbilt University's racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't, and I, I pray for her often because, yeah, I can only yeah. imagine as a black queer woman what yeah. it's like to lead in a predominantly white space. And uh, yeah, so I think that my Christian, my Christian past has had you know, a couple of transformations, one in the military, accepting my mm-hmm. call. And the other was in seminary where, um, I was thinking more out of the box of congregational ministry, but mm-hmm. I was doing ministry both as congregational and community. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was probably the best lesson I needed to hear and learn while I, while in seminary. I didn't, I didn't know that. Because I was very congregational based. Because mm-hmm. uh, I like I said earlier, in my early childhood, I love the church, I love the ceremony, I love the pageantry, I love it all. Um, but what really woke me up to what real ministry was was learning that um, Christ was brutalized on that Easter uh, mm-hmm. moment, like he was pretty much destroyed by the state physically. Yeah. And everything that happened to him can be translated to 2021. And Hmm. that is scary as hell that it took the police to arrest Jesus. Well, it took they used a narrative to uh, cast dispersions on Jesus and his neighborhood. And it was easy for them to arrest them because of those narratives. And then the state of Rome crucified him because of those narratives 
Yeah. And that story is in the same tradition of mass incarceration. It's the mm. same exact story. It's mm-hmm. casting dispersions. Oh, that's a crack community. That's a drug infested community. Therefore, when the police come in and arrest you, there's no questions or no quorums or no debate around why you're arrested. We just arrest mm-hmm. you. And for some of these folks on these drug crimes, they were in prisons for decades. Mm-hmm. While we, while data has finally surfaced from Michelle Alexander's work and the new in the new Jim Crow that yeah. our white counterparts weren't dealing with the same thing. Oh, I forgot about that. So the new Jim Crow was also a big thing while I was in seminary in 2011. Her book oh, yeah, was yeah. just coming out. Yeah. And um, I had the privilege of meeting her. Uh, she's okay. wow. extremely sincere about her work. You can tell that you can tell that she went through her own transformational journey before wow. she arrived at writing that book. Mm-hmm. Her husband is a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. And so she's no stranger to how to be a um be a gear, you know, in in the mass incarceration system. So yeah, she definitely yeah. went through a transformation and, and I'm glad that she did because when you go through a transformation, um you realize that everything you say from then on is very intentional. Um hmm. because you now are convinced that there is a there there is a better way, and um, so I appreciate her for that. But yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Uh, thanks for sharing all that. No problem. Talk about uh, a spiritual practice that's been meaningful for you, or you might recommend to others. Absolutely, um, African spiritual um, practices um, are the best. For uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're just amazing. Uh, connecting with my ancestors through. Um, uh, pouring of the libation. Okay. That is extremely powerful. I did not know how powerful that was until I was a part of a ceremony that did it. It's extremely powerful. Um, breathing exercises where you're um, channeling your channeling your chi and trying to rid yourself of like toxic um, uh, either thoughts or toxicity that mm-hmm. just kind of you know hoarded in your in your in your system breathing system uh, really helps with that prayer is I did not know how amazing prayer was until I got older hmm. I knew it was something when I was a kid not only yeah. something but uh, as a grown adult I can definitively say prayer is um a divine activity that is inexplicable. Um, hmm. So there's something about prayer that connects the human being with what's possible mm-hmm. and then the assurance that you can make that thing possible. Say that again. Say it again. Mm. Yeah, pr- connection with... Yeah, prayer is a connection with what's possible Mm-hmm. And it gives you, the prayee, the person praying, assurance that mm-hmm. you're able to um, reach that possibility. Wow. That's an amazing feeling to have. It's, so prayer is definitely real. And um, I don't think people should play with it. 
you should definitely use it as a as a tool for what you're trying to manifest into the into the world. Mm. Um, when, we, when we see people like the in the biblical, I think what makes the biblical story so amazing is that mm-hmm. everybody was in the underdog position, and yeah. they used whatever they had to fight against the system. And prayer was definitely one of them. Songs was mm-hmm. definitely one of them. Dancing was definitely one of them. These type of like nonviolent, a lot of these nonviolent tools were like really a part of the resistance back in the biblical times. Mm-hmm. Um, except for Peter, who wanted to, you know, take a sword and cut somebody's ear off. But yeah. um, sure. Um, but yeah, prayer, African spiritualities, um, attending worship, being a part of that worship, uh, that worship assembly with the with your congregation. That in and of itself is also amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of anything right now, but hopefully those. Well, that's guys. that's a. I mean, that quote itself is gold, man. Uh, so this is we're only in the introduction, and this has been great so far. <laughs> great. So let's <laughs> let's move on. We'll talk about uh, your paper, abolition theology, and then kind of how that connects to some of your work you're you're beginning now so you mentioned uh how african spiritual practices was is meaningful for you and in your paper i remember reading about uh how christianity has a history of uh i'll use the word subjugating native and indigenous religions uh and it's interesting because i was just uh, probably a month back can't remember uh i had a had a conversation with an, an uh an indigenous man from Canada, mm-hmm. he talked about a similar kind of thing, how Christian colonizers had essentially colonized, uh, you know, the the native religion out of native spiritual practice out of native folks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they would do that. When I say they, I'm talking about the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. who um, whose history and wealth and status in society is built off of this the raw sheer oppression of indigenous cultures across the planet not even just here in the u.s we -hmm. know about the taino people in south america we know about what the catholic church did to um, my african ancestors on the continent of africa Mm -hmm. we know what the catholic church did to its own people there in italy and, and england um, and when they began to, yeah, the Catholic church probably should cease to exist. And, um, one day they're going to get to that moment because mm. they're going to see that the harm of their organization, um, like the, like the United States is all of it was built off of and came from the prophets of, oppre- of, of oppressing people. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a Catholic pope, uh, I can't think of the year, but mm-hmm. obviously it was before 1619, when he would go to the continent of Africa and say, these are all barbaric people. They have mm-hmm. no souls. Yeah. And the Catholic Church in this time, when they made laws, that their laws were laws across so many different countries. It was law. And the U.S. Uh, colonies were not exempt from c- the Catholic uh, diocese. 
And so when the when the when the uh, when the Pope said enslave the folks from Africa versus the Taino people, um, that gave free reign. It was as if it was an executive order, a free reign mm -hmm. for this industry of of selling um, Africans and the that whole slave trade. And the Catholic Church has made minimal amends throughout history up to 2021. Um, yeah. And they're also directly responsible for what has happened to our indigenous people here in regards to um, allowing these Catholic missionaries to come to this mm -hmm. land and present themselves as this loving representative of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. but then using guns and military might to kill off and destroy um, those indigenous folks. Uh, if you go to Nashville, you'll see signs that call the indigenous people, you know, barbaric and call the mm -hmm. white and call the white people settlers. Um, you see the same image in liberal California. They got those same historical landmarks that show where some Catholic priest landed on this place in California and missionary and was a missionary. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, they don't talk about how they had to murder all those not all those indigenous people who refused to convert to Catholicism. Yeah. Um, and those chickens are going to come home to roost. They're going to have to. And I'm interested to see what that's going to look like. Yeah. So you write also in your paper about how the Bible uh, was used, uh, or as I read it, it was interesting how you, you seem to point out how the Bible was used to, certainly by Christian slaveholders, to oppress uh, black persons, but also how black persons used the Bible as a literal, they would pass like secret code language, if I read correctly, mm -hmm. for their escape. So it seemed like it was a source of literal and also spiritual freedom. And I, it, it seemed an interesting paradox about how uh, scriptures that were used to oppress people ultimately became the source of people's freedom. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I can't, I wish I could articulate what it meant to take someone else's religion and make it your uh -huh. own and build your gateway to liberation. Hmm. I don't know what internally that feels like, uh, but from most of the readings I've read of my ancestors doing mm -hmm. exactly that, yeah. um, it's pretty powerful. Uh, taking the taking the idea of God, as Carl, as Emmanuel Kant would, would say, mm -hmm. And you begin then to create your own understanding and content of what that God is and who that God and how that God sees you. Mm -hmm. And that type of theological, that type of spiritual awakening must be extremely powerful because of what my ancestors did. Some would run away without mm -hmm. a fight. Some felt so called by God 
that they would strategize and create slave rebellion throughout um, the South. Mm -hmm. Some would feel so called by God to organize the uh, church. We know about the AME the de de uh, denomination mm -hmm. and how that founder would leave the Methodist church and form his own denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And on the heels of the Civil War, literally the founder of that denomination was riding a horse alongside the Union general as they went down into the South. And as this Union army was fighting the South, this black preacher was organizing folks into the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's, yeah, I mean, um, and I hope I gave them, I hope I gave that moment in my paper justice. Mm -hmm. um, but until I talk with my ancestors about it face to face, yeah. I can only imagine what yeah. they would say, what that was like. But, but I hope that I tried to capture the whole process of grabbed from your homeland. Now you're in a strange land. You're socially dead. You're enslaved. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's supposed to be hope in the midst of all, of all that. And yeah. the Bible definitely gave some incredible hope. Yeah. Incredible hope. Freedom is obviously a big theme or broad theme of your work. Mm -hmm. Uh, abolition of bringing down systems and structures and bringing people freedom what does it mean uh i i i hear in your your conversation and i read in your paper your work about freedom of the body of uh and and a, a sacredness of the body what does it mean to hold the body or keep the body sacred as an interpreter of scripture Ugh, that's an accountability question, I think. Okay. So we know, I think Bell Hooks articulates it the best, uh -huh. that the world that we are born into is a white, patriarchal, classist, ableist system. Mm -hmm. Whether you like it or not, by force, you have to contend with uh, that if you're not white, you will be oppressed. If you're not m white and male, you will be oppressed. If you're not white and male and rich, you will be oppressed. If you're not white, mm -hmm. male, rich, and have all the activity of your limbs, you mm -hmm. will be oppressed. And then mm -hmm. the other isms can just fall as they yeah. may there. Yeah. Uh, so what does it mean to keep the body sacred? Um, as an interpreter of scripture, it is to become very clear about the isms that are plaguing this world. Be clear as possible. Mm -hmm. And then you become a agent, watch this, become an agent against the isms. That's mm. the only way the body can be sacred as an interpreter of scripture. What does it mean to keep the body sacred? Because it's one thing to talk about the isms, but if you're not doing anything to, to keep the isms from um, plaguing in your congregation and in your community, mm -hmm. 
then you're not doing a good job of keeping the body sacred. And I cannot mm-hmm. stress that enough because I grew up in a church that did a lot about selling hope. Mm-hmm. And that's fantastic. And getting us closer in relationship to Jesus Christ. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Spiritual practice, loving yourself, yeah. you name it. How soon ever, when I left that church on Sunday and I went to that predominantly white school on Monday yeah, and dealt with the racism there and then had to deal with a single mom who had to raise seven kids by herself, a black single mother, mm-hmm. um, who was literally depending on so many different things to raise this family. So in order to keep the body sacred, we have to recognize that we have to, we have to change the uh, system and not, and not the moments. Mm-hmm. And I'll say that again. Yeah. yeah. Actively changing the systems and not these moments. There's going to be plenty of moments that are going to be racist, sexist, uh, homophobic, transphobic, you name it. Trump gave us a whole bunch of moments. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what is it good to just change someone's behavior in that moment mm-hmm. if you don't change the system that allows for someone to behave that way in the first place? Um, yeah. So we have to think of more systems-based. That's the only way we can keep the body sacred. Now, um, you can probably speak more powerfully to this than I can, mm-hmm. but I think in white America, we tend to think of like a bad apples approach to these kind of things mm-hmm. and i think it fits within your kind of changing the moments not the systems or how it should you know you should change the systems not the moments but so often white america it's like this oh that's just a, you just have a single bad cop there or that cop was just right. having a bad day or whatever mm-hmm. right right you want me to respond i think you i think you articulated it beautifully <laughs> yeah that's, that's exactly it that's a good, that's yeah. A good example yeah Mm-hmm. Well, well, your free or your passion here is, uh, if our listeners cannot hear it, they're not paying attention. Uh, <laughs> but if you don't have any, if you want to say more on this, how else does your passion uh, for freedom and abolition drive your work and your ministry? My passion also scares me as much as it drives oh. me and energizes me. Uh huh. Because the passion is born out of being alive. Like, I enjoy being alive. I enjoy um, organizing. I enjoy being with family and friends. I enjoy being a part of transforming the world, changing the world. Mm-hmm. But it also scares me because that means you have to be the change you want to see. Hmm. Now I'm talking really good about undoing racism and sexism and homo- homophobia, etc. But I cannot be naive to think that I haven't been perpetuating those same isms. Sure. And my passion for freedom is also saying not only do you do the external work, but you have to do the internal work. Yeah. Even yeah. when it's just you. Yeah. Because I went to a seminary where it was extremely male heavy. Mm-hmm. It was, a, I mean, it was normal to joke about women preachers. 
Mm. And then it was extremely normal to to like taboo anyone who was queer um, mm. or LGBTQ coming to preach. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to un- I had to investigate that and unpack mm-hmm. all of that. Um, what are we saying that people are God's people? Um, then uh, I think the terminology at the time when I was in seminary was God hates the sin but loves the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I used to I say, okay, well, I guess that makes sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But then I started, you know, reading the right books, talking to people who are LGBTQ, mm-hmm. and then coming to learn that um, being LGBTQ is not a sin. Mm-hmm. And that's where I had my hardest hang up. I could not articulate theologically yeah. what that meant. Because the Bible doesn't really support doesn't support right. that uh, stance. Like you really have to do what, and if it wasn't for the whole slavery piece, that the, mm-hmm. the Bible also condones slavery, mm. which helped me to think that we were using the Bible and creating our own Bibles within the Bible. Oh, so we have to create our own Bible within the Bible to hmm. um, find freedom and, and to interpret freedom for oh. our, our, our loved ones who are still being um, interpreted as being li- living lives of just pure sin. Um, yeah, I heard it uh, this way. I'm curious if it connects with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Canon within the canon. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, talk more about your your project that you're trying to you're getting going here, a God sent project, and how it fits into all this. Yeah. So a God sent project was born out of my experience organizing in um, Los Angeles, where uh, God allowed me to be a part of a community effort to um, stop a huge three point five billion dollar jail plan. Yeah. And uh, Folks don't know how much money that is. I think a billion dollars is one billion is like you can really make a trail from the from the earth to the moon with one mm-hmm. billion dollars. And um, like any city, L.A. had pockets of poverty, had extreme homelessness, 50,000 homeless to be exact, mm-hmm. uh, ex- extreme racial disparity within the criminal justice system extreme racial disparity within the education system. Um, there was lack of resources for treatment. The only solutions to the problems in the community were jail. If you wanted, yeah. if you wanted treatment, you go to jail. They'll provide yeah. you a mental health counselor in jail. If you want access to college, you go to prison and they'll give you access to college. Yeah. <laughs> if you want um, good health care, you go to prison. Jail. You go to jail because they have to because of the of the um, of the cruel and unusual punishment within the I think it's the thirteenth yeah. or fourteenth amendment. Um, if you want a good job, you go to prison, and after you get out, you can get yourself a job. Hmm. So there was this kind of backwardness that I was really being ex- exposed to, and I just saw it face to face for the first time. And then mm-hmm. another big another big jail population was the parole violators. 
Okay. You wouldn't even believe how many parole violators are in jail right now for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Uh, it could be just for simply showing up a minute too late to your home. Mm-hmm. And that uh, parole person can just send you to, back to jail. Um, so um, jail and prisons was serving as a solution yeah. in society. And by God, I think we have reached a a type of intellectual um, uh, normalcy or uh, intellectual um, thinking that has now debunked any type of way jailing and prisons is serving as a solution. Yeah. Um, And that by way came by a lot of factors. Another one factor being the opioid crisis a lot of white folks were now experiencing yeah. the criminal justice system in large numbers due to their yeah. drug addictions. Um, we we were seeing um, mental 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 illness be criminalized. Yep. And people were not playing with that. They're like, "You're not going to jail my autistic child." Yeah. Um, or uh, someone going through a mental health crisis. You know. So. All of these experiences were creating this type of intellectual shift that it was it was ignorant to like think that a jail could really yeah. treat someone um, yeah. from a mental health crisis, which is great. That's fantastic. And so a Godsend project, we were doing all that work in Los Angeles, um, advocating to the county, showing up to county board of supervisors meetings getting them to draft motions to build a alternative to incarceration working group, which we got mm-hmm. for a full year. And through that full year, the community and the county worked collectively, formerly incarcerated folks, law enforcement, you name it, we're all in the room making, having a sensible conversation on the criminal mm-hmm. justice system. And what did that result? The ending of a $3.5 billion jail plan. And now the scaling up of treatment of treatment centers and money and access um to jobs um a return home program where folks are coming home from prison and from jails mm-hmm. we also ended the money bail system oh, wow. as well um in that county not the state yeah. but in that county um and so a gossip project I was like seeing all of this, like, oh, this is all possible. Mm-hmm. And so God said, okay, now go home to Ohio. Wow. Where they're working on a half a half a billion dollar jail plan in Cleveland. And they're working on a $30 million jail plan in Ashtabula. Go home. So God Sin Project was born out of witnessing, being a part of, and now bringing this home like Nehemiah to rebuild our walls towards justice for our communities. That's beautiful. Where can, uh, how can people get involved? Uh, Where did it work? How can people help? Well, depending on their location, Mm -hmm. um, find a abolitionist organization and join it. Okay. Make sure they're abolitionists. It's very hard to be an abolitionist. It's almost like being a, like, commie. They'll call you out. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And then um, have courageous conversations about this current criminal justice system. 
Mm. Talk about the history of the criminal justice system. If you don't know it, at least watch some YouTube videos about it. Uh, the, um, the, the, the documentary on Netflix is a good job. Um, the 13, 13, mm -hmm. I think is the name mm -hmm. of it. Um, there's too many people talking about it now. Too many people, too many people talking about mass incarceration. Yeah, Michelle Alexander was like one of the first. Now there's over thousands of people who are, yeah. who are coming home from, from prison and they're and they're and they are telling you exactly what it's like, how to be charged and go through the criminal justice system and, um, and then being banned from jobs and you just name it, you know, so become aware join a, a a organization and don't feel like um don't be hesitant to give resources mm. because abolition is like a kind of a new and and emerging movement um it needs its resources mm -hmm. so i know you've been given to this organization for the past 10 years try also giving to a godsend project or dignity empowered now or uh, the Cuyahoga County Jail Coalition or to the Justice LA in Los Angeles or the Youth Justice Coalition in Los Angeles. Find some abolition organizations because they need the resources. Yeah. Um, and we can return. There's a great return on those resources as you as we talked about when we ended yeah. the 3.5 yeah. jail plan. So yeah. Yeah, I, I'm setting in another context uh, nonprofit work and uh, you know the social return on investment uh, I know it's hard to sometimes quantify social work in that way, but I mean, from a from a financial point alone, it makes so much sense. You know, rather than spending three point five billion dollars on a prison to invest that into the local population, I mean, it's it's incredible. Oh, exactly. And I'm sounds like you are from here, born and raised. I'm in Colorado most of my life. <laughs> We're 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 in, we're in Colorado, Denver area. Oh, I was just there. I actually just bought some new coffee cups there. Nice. Well, let's let's take a break real quick, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Reverend Reggie Bunch. So, uh, uh, Reggie, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, so I'm guessing, I'm guessing based on our previous conversation, I have a a hint about what you want to say about the first one. Uh, if you're Pope for a day, you want to just shut it down? If I were Pope for a day, I would abolish the Catholic Church. <laughs> I would write a, a Catholic bull, which is yeah. a Catholic order, that say I want to report in the next year mm -hmm. with the working group to figure out how to abolish the Catholic Church as it ceases, as it exists today. Abolishing it, the whole system. All to right. disorientate, to disorient the entire religious um, system that we have created throughout these um, last 2,000 years. <clears throat> mm -hmm. That would be amazing. You know, others have said that basically the answer, but you have given it the most thought. Uh, you have the most detailed plan there. <laughs> So, yes, I have a plan. <laughs> yes, I have a plan. <laughs> uh, a historic, what, historic, I can't talk here. A theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. 
Oh my gosh. Oh, wait, only one? Well, how many do you want to bring back to life? Oh my gosh. I want to sit and talk with Nate Turner. Okay. I w- because I'm glad. I don't know. Obviously, he didn't write his own story. Uh-huh. But I want to tell him thank you. Okay. And I want to hear and just affirm his his calling. You know, mm. everything that Nate Turner did, he said that he did it as a is a sense of calling that mm-hmm. he got from God. Even the whole slave rebellion that that he did. Yeah. It was a call from God. Yeah. And um I want to I just want to sit and talk with him. Maybe just, you know, you know, sit at like a coffee shop and have my favorite, you know, drink and he just starts talking. Or he's invited to a church. Are you having with Nate Turner then? <laughs> what kind of a coffee? <laughs> I don't know. Probably my regular. I mean, usually I have coffee with my cream. I put more cream in my coffee than I put coffee in my coffee. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, probably a regular cup of coffee with a whole bunch of cream in it. You acted like it was hard to pick one. So does someone else come to mind you'd want to bring oh, into the conversation? Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Harriet Tubman. Okay. Here, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, uh huh, um, Frederick Douglass, W. B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Dr. King, Coretta Scott mm-hmm. King, Rosa Parks, uh, Dick Gregory, um, Jesus Christ, uh, the Twelve Disciples, um, Moses, Isaiah, uh, um, John the Revelator. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jesus. Um, we need a bigger coffee shop, but man, what a conversation <laughs> to sit in and just listen, listen in on. Yeah, I mean, man, oh, if I could just go through the through the history and just pick out figures and just talk. Oh my gosh, what Ugh. do you think history will remember? From our current time and place. Oh my gosh. That jails and prisons are, are obsolete. Policing is, is obsolete. Mm-hmm. There would come a time, a hundred, well, no, it was 50 years after the civil rights movement mm-hmm. that they saw that there, needed to, that there needed to be equality or this uh-huh. continual project of equality. Yeah. So um, they'll look back here 50 years from now and say, you know what? Those activists were right. We really mm. didn't need the police. We really didn't need billions, a whole industry of prisons, private yeah. prisons, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. You know, we didn't need the Guantanamo Bays and Secret Service and Special Forces and, and you know, all this carceral humanism crap. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you hope for the future of Christianity? That Christianity would be either the one of the major uh, voices of, of justice in regards to the, the abolition movement mm-hmm. or Christianity would cease from existing. Wow. People will leave this thing and go and go and go to another matter of fact, so many reports going out uh, that so many uh, young people are leaving the church yeah. for yeah. African spiritualities or just for, you know, something other than church. Yeah. Um, Shape up or ship out then. 
That's how I see it. You know. Where can people find out more about you and follow your work? Well, I'm currently on the Ohio Organizing Collaborative um, payroll. I'm an organizer there. And so you can find us at Ohio Organizing, ohorganizing.org, or on our Facebook or on our Instagram. I also have my own Instagram at um, Abolition is, is Nigh, or my Facebook, Evan Regis Regi Bunch. Um, and on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? Mm-hmm. I have, I have two things on Twitter. I have my own personal Twitter, which is mm-hmm. at gr, the number eight, j-o-y-1, great joy one. And then for my organization, um, I was able to talk to this Twitter uh, bot software guy, and he was able to, to create this bot that's able to tweet out current jail data here in Cuyahoga County. Wow. Um, that's called at Amos jail data. All that data is day to day. So you get real time jail data of our local jail um, at Amos jail data. What a really, that, what a cool, like smart way to like engage in social media yeah. using and get numbers and, and data out there. That's oh. so smart, man. Man, that was, I mean, we going back earlier to our earlier piece around, um, my my journey here in the in this work mm-hmm. social media was a game changer for the mm-hmm. movement if i'm yeah. if i'm not mistaken i remember when ferguson and michael brown happened august 9 2014 it was noon august 9 2014 that was mm-hmm. a saturday his death was publicized uh, i'm pretty sure it became well-known news i think an hour or two later that Mm -hmm. was because of social media people tweeting it out facebooking the message like i mean uh social media made information move like rapid fire yeah Yeah. and we were able to organize easier too because of social media um i just remember i was in ferguson and uh someone was on twitter like we over here on on this street dealing with that and we all ran over there because <laughs> this person twitter feed but yeah social media was a game changer you can mm-hmm. you can get access to current events while they are happening yeah live on the ground that is that that changed the game we saw michael brown in that on that uh street for four we saw it for four hours the videos mm-hmm. are still you can still find them of people recording Michael Brown on that street for four hours, roasting in that in that sun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time. I really uh, appreciate the conversation, and uh, just want to thank you for your time and your thoughts. And uh, always leave folks with a word of peace. So may God's peace be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to uh, seeing what God is also doing uh, with with you. I know you are building out um, an amazing uh, enterprise as well. And so we're all part of that major fabric of, of justice. And um, we're going to get it done. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us 
Thanks again, and go in peace. <laughs>